not only is this product epic, but the jingle for this product is epic. If you know it, do it along with me. Ready? Clap on, clap off, clap on, clap, clap off, off the, the clapper. clapper. <laughs> Actually, the clapper sold over 7 million units. And there it is, Mark holding a clapper up right there. I have an original clapper. And yeah, they make a pill for that, though. <laughs> is yours a is yours a two prong or a three prong mine is a two prong it's the original clapper okay so you're the original oh. so the super clapper was a three prong well i bet that brought a lot of pleasure to all kinds of families and individuals across the world well when you when you add that third hole it opens up a whole world of possibilities <laughs> <laughs> what's up dueling decades this is wax peace to all you guys and uh thanks for having me on the show will it be the 90s or the 80s beanie babies or crack babies will it be nirvana or madonna maybe britney maybe whitney do you like new metal or new wave dave Grohl or super dave i don't know but now the battle begins dueling decades let's see who wins dueling decades broadcasting from the bio bidet studios where water does it better Greetings and welcome to another episode of Dueling Decades, the adult audio retro game show where the 80s and 90s do battle because it's your history, we just fight for it. Let's take a look at this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, holding an undefeated singles record of 2-0, representing television of 1984. That's right. I am uh, Nick Mancrush, and I have television of 1984. And the man who will test that undefeated streak, representing television of 1996. I'm Mike Ranger, and I may have a venereal disease. <laughs> <laughs> and as always here on our show, we need someone to pass the judgment on the left-hand side. So for this championship television battle, we brought the big badass of broadcasting, Judge Bo Beecraft. Good eye. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. The winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. Now, duelers, let's be excellent to each other and play some dueling decades. I still owe you a punch in the mouth from the last episode for what <laughs> i owe you a shot to the nuts i should have had a shutout i listened back <laughs> definitely should have been a shutout it should have been the first ever shutout well, we'll see what happens i'm not judging tonight and i'm not playing so you know what i'm gonna be in mike ranger's corner tonight Ooh, yeah, side I'm, picker i can here. choose sides tonight right. i want to see the man crush go down you could be my manager mark come on baby you can do it baby let's go <laughs> All right, so let's go over to Judge Bo Beecraft for the coin flip for tonight's game. All right, gentlemen, we head down to the coin purse. This uh, flip this evening is this weird plastic molded uh, go-bot of some sort thing. Did you call him a go-bot? Sure, close <laughs> enough. Why not? Uh, this looks like brain damage RoboCop. Uh, so here we go. Heads or tails? Who's, who's going to call it? Mike? Uh, Mike will call. All right, Mike, call it in the air. Go. Heads. Oh, shit, it landed sideways. Let me reflip it. <laughs> <laughs> How could that you... thing land sideways? It landed on my mixer board, like in between the knobs. All right, you there sticking with Twilight heads? Twilight Zone episode where the guy flipped a coin and it landed on its side, and he could read minds the whole episode until the coin fell down. So maybe you'll have special powers. Oh, I like that. All right, you sticking with heads? It's going to be interesting for yeah. being a judge. All right, yeah. <laughs> It is tails, gentlemen. Motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to begin this one with television movies. Ooh. Ooh. I'll take anything starring Brian Dennehy for 200. <laughs> <laughs> he does do a lot of TV movies. <laughs> Not enough anymore. 
He was on Blacklist a couple years ago. That's not a TV movie. It's because his close. body size perfectly fits the old aspect ratio. <laughs> <laughs> he still looks exactly the same, like old and shitty. He looks like an old, like retired Irish drunken cop. Yeah. Forever. Typecast. They probably have to pull him out of some like small pub and clean him up before every gig he takes. <laughs> On Blacklist, he played a Russian, which was kind of funny. Yeah, that's interesting. Totally didn't go, but he pulled it off. Anyhow. All right, so let's go to May 6th through May 8th, 1984. NBC aired a three-part mini-movie, V, The Final Battle, uh, which is the sequel to the cult classic V mini-movie that debuted in 1983. Uh, NBC had a really good 1984. It's amazing to look over like the last 30 years and you see these networks just take peaks and valleys, but 84 is really solid for NBC. Uh, anyways, this show did fantastic for NBC. Just like everything else they touched that year. Uh, the show averaged a 37 share, which is fantastic. Uh, when they finally aired this in the UK, which is kind of cool, they put everything together and just uh, had it in one 10 hour mini movie, which is pretty dope. But for the people that know V, this is like one of those franchises that has major legs. You know, to a larger extent, you have Star Trek and Star Wars, but V is like one of those cult classics that hung around. They try to make it a show after the mini movie, and then they try to reboot it again in 2009. However, if you go to any Comic-Con, Mark knows, Mike knows that they went with me. There's always like a whole V set there. There's like some, like, what do they call it? Like the local divisions of like the resistance. Right. And they have their vehicles and people are dressed up like in their V garb and shit. And, and, you know, on top of the whole thing, it's fucking alien lizard people versus the human race. Sign me up, man. So uh, my first pick would have to go to V, the final battle. And uh, secondly, um, in 1983, you had uh, Return of the Jedi that came out, rocked the box office. Uh, nothing noteworthy about that. Uh Star Wars making a movie that makes a lot of cash. What's the big deal? But that said, that also kicked off the Ewok phenomenon. And as a five-year-old, 1983, Ewoks were like the Cabbage Patch Kids for boys. Do you guys remember the Wicket stuffed animal? Had one. I absolutely had one. They're f fucking awesome. I always fucking wanted one of those. My parents wouldn't buy me one. But I did have a stupid-ass garbage, or not garbage, but okay, I wish, Cabbage Patch Kid. <laughs> I remember fucking crushed its dome so like you couldn't pop it back out. <laughs> and my mom was so pissed. I drew on mine to make him Starman from the NES Pro Wrestling game with permanent marker. <laughs> all the all the ones that guys bought or little boys had, they're all fucked up. They're always dirty and disheveled looking. Like they lived on Here's the street. Deformity Danny. <laughs> <laughs> He, he uh, comes from Nine Mile Island. That, anyhow, so like at this point, like Ewoks were huge. You know, you had them in Return of the Jedi, and then you had this whole thing with the stuffed animals, and they were so huge that George Lucas and ABC decided to make the movie, The Ewok Adventure, or otherwise known Caravan of Courage. Uh, they released that on November twenty fifth, nineteen eighty four. Uh, and if you ever saw like the Star Wars holiday special, this is nothing. Like that pile of shit. George Lucas learned his lesson from that. Um, you know, that was such an abortion that he made sure that he was in charge and oversaw the entire production of this movie. And um, they did have a sequel the next year. Was it Battle of Endor came out in 85? And interestingly, it was second in the ratings the week that it came out with a 24.9. Second only to the second half of the TV movie Fatal Vision which I could have used for this because it was the number one rated. But seriously, when you look at it, who the fuck knows what Fatal Vision is anymore? I had to look it up. And it had good ratings and won some awards and shit. But what the fuck is Fatal Vision? How did that beat out Ewoks? That was before Fatal Attraction. Right. <laughs> well, you're right. You got to see it before you fall for it. Uh, three years. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I got. I got uh, V, The Final Battle, and The Ewok Adventure. Both from 1984. All right. Over to Mike Ranger for your television offerings. All right. So in 1996, if you were watching CBS on November 15th, then you must have been watching Dallas JR Returns. 
This was the first of two Dallas reunion films set five years after J.R. Ewing lost Ewing Oil and apparently committed suicide. He turns up alive and well with the intention of bringing his family together and regaining control over Ewing Oil from his nemesis Cliff Barnes. The reunion film received a 13.4 rating and ranked 14th among broadcasts for the week. One of the longest-running dramas in American TV history returned, with J.R. ready to make Machiavelli look like Mother Teresa. Relive the power, ambition, seduction, and betrayal with the Ewing family on South Fork Ranch. Again. <laughs> How many times did they come back? Didn't they come back Dude, again? People fucking love Dallas, man. Back from the dead with the shaved head. Gotta love Dallas. No, no. People really. love it. I never liked it, but people fucking love Dallas. All right, so, but um, for my second one, uh, I had on February 24th, 1996, on HBO, The Late Shift premiered. The Late Shift told the story of the battle between Jay Leno and David Letterman to take over The Tonight Show from Donnie Car- uh, Johnny Carson. Despite being nominated for seven Emmys, David Letterman called the movie the biggest waste of film since my wedding photos. Uh, Jay Leno's chin has uh, yet to comment. <laughs> It's a good movie. We talked about this exact movie last episode, actually. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good movie. I own it on DVD. It's got Kathy Bates in it. It's a great film. I haven't seen that in forever. She plays Jay Leno. She does. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I guess uh, that's all you got. So off to round one. The judgment from Mr. Beecraft. This is difficult. I had to take some some pretty good notes, do a little on the fly Googling as well. Uh, so just to recap, 1984, you got V, The Final Battle, a right. sequel to the 1983 TV movie V, which aired on NBC. Also, November 25th, 1984, the Ewok movie Caravan of Courage and Ewok Adventure. 96, you've got Dallas, JR Returns. Uh, and uh, February 24th, The Late Shift was what it was called, right? Uh, yeah. There's some doozies here, gentlemen. Some certain doozies. Uh, as much as I'm a big fan of the Ewoks, and I'd love to domesticate one. Um, <laughs> that sounds so dirty. I'm torn here because just as as cute as Ewoks are, you've also got Patrick Duffy, who's goddamn adorable. Uh, not only in, in any iteration of Dallas, but also on Step by Step opposite Suzanne Somers. Mm. But is he cuter than Mr. Warwick? <sighs> I don't know. Mr. Know. Warwick in a tiny bear costume. Well, I'm thinking about Patrick Duffy up against George Lucas, and that really is kind of a no contest. Uh, George <laughs> Lucas looks like he'd be covered in cookie crumbs at any given time and probably have beef and cheese breath. Uh, <laughs> what? I think uh, I, I think based upon the uh, based upon Mike's picks, I'm going to hand this one to 96 because you've got the chronicling of the big late night wars between guys like Letterman and Leno. That's a, a tale as old as time. And then you've got, of course, Dallas, which, like Mike mentioned, one of the longest running dramas in television history. It's still, I, I, I guess maybe they canceled it, but they did bring it back just a couple of years ago. I think yeah. it was on TNT or something like that. So you've got staying power, which isn't to say that Star Wars still doesn't have staying power either. But uh, yeah, your whole argument just disintegrated on that. Yeah, I know. Uh, but that's what you get when you put me in the judge's seat. You're, you're trying to say Star Wars is not around anymore? And, dude, V is, like, such... No, like, I just I just said is, Star Wars has staying power, too. No, but you're, you're, not, you're not mentioning V at all. Like, V is huge, man. Uh, you're like, you haven't even mentioned it once. Uh, I haven't watched V in, like, 20 years, and that Star Wars movie, nobody likes. <laughs> no, nobody likes it. But nobody likes that version of Dallas, either. Look, guys, the last time I cared about a V was when I was 16 and in high school and had a boner the size of fucking Mount Rushmore. <laughs> I'm sticking with 96 here. Terrible choice, but. All right. On to round two. Mike Ranger, you have control of the board. Where are we going? Ooh. Where do I go from here? I've got so many good fucking choices. All right. You know what? We're going to go with uh, music. All right. So on August 17th. 1996 on Nickelodeon debuted the classic 90s kids show for all the orange soda lovers called Keenan and Kel and along with it a superb theme song performed by the one and only Coolio who took kids of the 90s on a fantastic voyage to a gangster's paradise where the women were just too hot (laughs) Coolio who's a modern day Shakespeare raps uh, these elegant lines like Siegfried and Roy Abbott and Costello, Magic and Kareem, or Penn and Teller, 
Somebody's in trouble. Ah, here it goes. Just think about that for a minute. That was actually the uh, class motto for my graduating class. Oh, was it? It's just absolutely delightful. Yeah, I'm going to have the same thing engraved on my tombstone when I pass. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, here it goes. Yep. Oh, here it goes. As fantastic as that one was, my my second one here is just even more. From, do you guys remember Brian Austin Green who played David on Nine Hundred Two One Hundred? Oh, is this going to be about his rap career? <laughs> How about that that rap album that he released in nineteen ninety six? Oh man, epic! All right, Brian's debut and only album was released on November fifth, nineteen ninety six, titled One Stop Carnival. The album was produced by Slim Kid Three of the amazing hip hop group Farside. The album has 14 tracks with the track You Send Me getting a music video, but I couldn't find any charting action. (laughs) One reviewer called the album uninspired and insufferably arrogant with no acknowledgement that its very existence (laughs) rests solely on Green's limited success as a secondary actor on a fading primetime drama. Fading? Oh, yeah. 96. Yeah, I guess. But you know what's funny? Like on the surface. This is ridiculous. He looks calm and ready. Yeah. <laughs> you would think that the album would be fucking terrible, but it's actually not that bad. I don't know if he wrote it, but it's actually not that terrible. I actually think had he, if it wasn't for Vanilla Ice and the fact that he was on 90210 and everybody knew who he was, it wouldn't have been so yeah. bad. Well, the album wasn't that bad. If it was that bad of an album, there's no way he could have had the release party at the Peach Pit. <laughs> after dark well it was after dark. Right. <laughs> Look, he still procreated with megan fox so his career i mean we can't fault yeah, him there what the fuck i just think it's funny that somebody knew that i was coming with that <laughs> I, I honestly did not even know that he really released an album i just thought it was just on the show yep and i watched the video uh twice yesterday wow yeah all right sorry over to nick Mancrash for his music offerings for the television battle all right, so here's a kid's show that actually holds up. Uh, I, I think I told you guys last night I watched Wayne's World with my daughter, and she was totally bored. I don't know. Like, this has really nothing to do with the fact that- You sure she's yours? That wasn't released in any uh, close year or anything, but the fact that she found that boring. On the flip side, I watched what felt like 20 straight episodes of Kids Incorporated, and she loved that. <laughs> so that's my first television music selection is the first episode, September 1st, 1984, the syndicated debut of Kids Incorporated. Uh, and actually, the first two years of the show were syndicated. They were not on Disney. After that, it went to Disney. And for those of you who don't know, Kids Incorporated was a show where kids would perform popular songs and they would sing and dance and all that fun shit. And they would also be dealing with some teenage melodrama, like bullying or like your first crush, child abuse. Crabs. Crabs. They always had some kind of angle. Uh, The basic premise of the show was based on these musical performances. And this is also the show where a young Stacy Ferguson got her big break. You might know her uh, by her name, Fergie of the Black Eyed Peas. Uh, You might also know uh, Marta Marrero. Her name was Gloria on the show. Uh, She would go on to have the song Toy Soldiers and went by the name Martika. You guys are familiar with that? And then a couple of years down the pipe, you had a very young Jennifer Love Hewitt was on the show. And then you had motherfucking Rudy from Monster Squad. Everybody knows Rudy. Rudy is, you know, like the badass, like high school kid that hangs out with the elementary school kids and rides his bike with the leather jacket on. He was on the show. Then to top it all off, you had AC Slater banging drums for the first two seasons. Mario Lopez himself was also on Kids Incorporated. Nice. All-star cast on that show. I remember watching Kids Incorporated. I was a big fan of that show. Yeah, that show was awesome. (laughs) And actually, you know what? When I watched those episodes with her, it did bring back a lot of memories, and it wasn't really that bad, because Fergie's voice, even as a a child, was really good. And she sang most of the songs, so it really wasn't terrible. It's cheesy and hokey, I mean, but... Now, did she pee her pants on that show as well? (laughs) No, but she did do the national anthem. (laughs) Yeah, what happened? How the mighty have fallen, huh? All right, so then my second pick, September 16th, 1984, you had Brothers Keeper. This was the premiere two-part Miami Vice episode that debuted the show. Uh, The episode, an essential piece of 80s pop culture. 
Miami Vice was like an hour long music video and they completely revolutionized TV by using music and the cinematography and like it was definitely style over substance. But then again, that's the fucking eighties in a nutshell. And it makes it easy to see why Miami Vice was one of the most popular shows of the decades on and off the air because the highest it was ever rated was like, I think one year it was rated nine. So it was in the top 10. Other than that, it usually hung around the 20s, which is really bizarre that they put this show on Fridays, Friday nights and Sunday nights, and they marketed it to the MTV generation. Who the fuck was home on Friday and Sunday? Yeah. That shit just drives me crazy because they could have done so much better. The last four episodes of the entire show, they actually aired on Wednesdays. But uh, Michael Mann brought in a Czech electronic music (laughs) composer, which everybody knows, Jan Hammer to do the uh, Miami Vice theme song. And that song actually went number one on the Billboard Hot 100. And to this day, it's one of only like a handful of songs that are straight instrumental to hit number one on that list. And then aside from that hit track, the producers allowed the show to have a big budget for music. And they brought in popular tracks. And this is just from the first episode. You had the Rolling Stones miss you. You had somebody watching me from Rockwell. You had Girls Just Want to Have Fun from Cindy Lauper. You had Bette Midler on there. Mark's favorite was on uh, All Night Long from Lionel Richie. And then, of course, the most famous scene of the show. You got Crockett and Tubbs speeding through Miami at nighttime, riding in a Ferrari Daytona Spider while set to Phil Collins in the air tonight. The scene, it's it's arguably the most memorable and famous scene from the series and probably from TV in the eighties, I would say it's the only scene I remember. Yeah. People have never seen that show. You know, I've, what I've noticed like later on, and it's like I said before, like nobody really watched the show as much as they heard about the show in the eighties. Like it picked, like it went to style. Like people like picked up the, the style. Everyone was like, you know, wanted to be Sonny Crockett and shit. But they weren't really watching the show that much. But then later on, everyone rewatched the show and seen all the episodes. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's it for music. I mean, that's what else? What else do I need? I mean, that kills his like, do I even do we have to go to Bo for this? Bo, I'm not even sure what your second topic was about. <laughs> it's it's basically it's basically it could be anything. I mean, compared to your picks, I could have picked the Jan Hammer song to beat both of those. Oh, Jan Hammer, my favorite WCW wrestler. Heavy metal Jan Hammer. Awesome. <laughs> it's, my my second pick has to be for the premiere Brothers Keeper and just the songs that were just on that first episode, 1984. September 16th, 1984, you had nine real songs in an episode, which is really the first time that this happened on TV. And then now we just go to expect it. If it's not on a, a show now, and they try to put some jobber ass bullshit on you know, the <laughs> song, you're going to be like, what is this garbage? So this is where it started off to Bo again. All right. Quick recap. August 96, uh, Nickelodeon debuts Keenan and Kel with a theme song by Coolio. Uh, Brian Austin Green debuts his first record, One Stop Carnival, which uh, is really telling. Uh <laughs> September 1st, 1984, Kids Incorporated and it makes its syndicated debut in September 16, 1984, Brothers Keeper, the first Miami Vice two-part episode. I think there's no contest here despite, uh, you know, Nickelodeon being kind of the peak of my childhood. Didn't really watch 90210 because it was a little more mature for me. Uh, 80, 84 takes this hands down because you've got you really have nothing to argue here. Uh, you're talking teenage melodrama with musical numbers. I mean, that's like fucking kids bop and Dr. Phil had a baby and they put it in primetime <laughs> syndication for kids. Uh, Fergie, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Mario Lopez, all those people making their kind of footprint on that. And then uh, the Miami Vice thing, obviously that's that's huge. The The theme song is unforgettable. And then you're including a, a cast of musical characters like the Rolling Stones. You mentioned Rockwell, Cindy Lauper. Mark's favorite pet, Midler, uh, Lionel Richie, <laughs> <laughs> Phil Collins. I mean, this is this is honestly, this is a no-brainer. 84 takes this hands down. Oh, oh, all wow. right. So, Nick Mancrush, you regain control of the board, heading in to our final single-point round. What are you choosing? I'm going to have to go with television news. Uh, January 27th, 1984. 
this is actually an article out of the Daily News from January 28th, 1984. But the incident happened January 27th, 1984, while filming a commercial for Pepsi. Michael Jackson lights his hair on fire and suffers second-degree burns. <laughs> Have you guys seen the video of this? No, there's a video of that? Oh, yeah. Go to YouTube and just type up. Uh, that. It's fucking phenomenal. It's like, all right, so he's standing there, and it looks like the pyro went off before he moved, and maybe he was supposed to move faster or whatever, but the pyro comes down. It just, like, lights his hair on fire. And from this article that I have, they said that he had soul glow in his hair. Uh, no, it didn't say he had soul glow. It actually says pomade. But, like, you see his his hair just, like, light up. He looks like fucking Ghost Rider. It just it goes straight up. God, can you imagine? The professionalism, though. Like, he must not have known that his hair was on fire. He walks down, because he's on, like, a tiered stage, and he just walks down the stage with his hair on fire, still, like, singing and doing this dance. And then all these people run out, and then you can't even tell if he's still dancing or if he's just freaking the fuck out because he's just, like, <laughs> moving around. There's fucking flames <laughs> everywhere. But, yeah, see, he, he finished up with that, oh, shit, I'm on fire uh, jiggle. But this also led to, do you guys remember, like, the um, the Pledge of Allegiance for Michael Jackson when we were in elementary school? What? You don't remember this? It was, like, Pepsi-Cola, burn him up, now he drinks 7-Up. No, <laughs> you don't remember that shit. No, I kind of remember that. Kind of. What's the whole thing? I gotta hear it all. I can't remember. It was like I pledge allegiance to the flag. Michael Jackson is a bleep. Pepsi Cola burnt him up. Now he drinks Seven Up, and there was more. I just don't remember it. What it doesn't? Nothing rhymes with bleep. <laughs> all right, uh, yeah, back to news. That's what happened in the eighties. So, um, yeah. So he lit his uh, fucking hair on fire. And then switched over to 7-Up. That was the first one. And then uh, I had to dig a little bit for the second one. There was actually a bunch of stories from 84 that were really interesting. But I went with this one because it's something that we always talk about. So this was uh, on December 28th, 1984. Do you guys know John Stossel? Give me a break. Offensive lineman for... All right, ne- negative. All right, so he no, was he actually... Was on, a, he was on Dateline. He, yeah, he was a Dateline 2020 reporter guy. So he delivered this expose on pro wrestling for 2020. This seemed like the first time it was ever done on network television. Like somebody was finally pulling the curtain back on professional wrestling. And he really went deep. There were scenes where, you know, he's meeting with wrestlers and they're showing him how moves work. You know, they're showing him how they blade their foreheads, where they hide it. And this is all on 2020. So lo and behold, he gets to the end of his interview and are you guys familiar with Dr. David Schultz? I posted a picture of him the other night on our Facebook group page. And actually, some people knew him, and some people knew all about this. Are you guys aware of, of this? Is this a new story? The story's not. <laughs> no, all right, so I haven't heard of this. Everyone's just looking at me like I'm fucking retarded. Well, we're waiting. <laughs> so, <laughs> Dr. David Schultz was a heel wrestler in WWF and John Stossel gets him one day behind, you know, they're like in the backstage area. They're at Madison square garden. It was sometime in December of 1984. And he's just questioning Schultz and you could already see like Schultz had everyone looked at him as like a tough guy. Like he was always doing fucked up shit. He was a very stiff wrestler and he would never break kayfabe. Like there was matter of fact, the picture that I posted the other day in the group, it's from a Tuesday night Titans episode. And if you ever go back and find it, I think it's episode two of Tuesday night Titans and watch it. It is fucking eye opening, but you watch this thing on this guy and uh, Schultz basically just straight out or not stole Stossel comes out and looks at him and says, what do you, well, he asked him, what do you think of wrestling? And he said, I think it's fake said right to his face. And you could see Schultz getting really pissed off and without hesitation, he just open hand slaps him in the left ear and knocks him to the ground. And this shit's not fake. This really fucking happened. Then uh, Stossel stands back up and then he hits him again with a right hand and hits him in the right ear. And this time he fucking hits the ground <laughs> crazy hard. He pops back up and he like starts running down the hall and Stossel or uh, Schultz starts like walking after him or whatever. But like a few weeks later, uh, Stossel actually sat down with Barbara Walters when they released this episode on the 28th. And he was saying that he's still feeling the after effects of the slaps to the ears 
And then later, well, Schultz ended up getting fired from the WWF from all this. And then he went on record saying that Vince was the one that told him to slap Stossel because like he was interviewing Vince and shit during this whole expose. And uh, so they fired him. And then Stossel ends up suing the WWF and winning like 450 grand over this whole thing. Yeah. It's it's a crazy fucking story, but it all starts with this 2020 expose episode on professional wrestling from December 28th, 1984. Check it out. It's actually it's on YouTube. If you want to go there and watch it, I think you can get the whole thing without commercials. It's like 11 minutes. It's some shit. All right. Over to Mike Ranger for his news offerings. All right. So on July 7th, 1996, at the Ocean Center in Daytona Beach, Florida, at WCW's Bash at the Beach, Hulk Hogan stopped fighting for the rights of every man and turned heel and birthed the New World Order. Scott Hall and Kevin Nash had a six-man tag team match against Sting, Randy Savage, and Lex Luger. Hogan showed up in the middle of the match, hit Savage with a leg drop, and shocked fans around the world. An interview with Mean Gene after the match saw the reveal of what Hogan called the New World Order, and so began a new era of wrestling and propelled WCW to the top of the Monday Night Wars. What you gonna do, brother, when the New World Organization runs wild on you? (laughs) (laughs) And that's what he called it at first. I always thought that was weird. Is that was that a flub? Or was they called it he called it the New World Organization, and of course it became the New World Order, like Four weeks later. I know. Yeah, I actually have had to keep reading because I was like, is this a fucking misprint? Yeah, no, that's actually what he said, and then they decided to <laughs> yeah. change it. So I don't, I don't know if that he fucked up or they just got a better idea later. They were actually just going to call it the New Organization Experience, but it didn't go over well with the fans, so they had to go back to the drawing board. Oh, damn. That's good. They're going to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> and for my second piece of news... On April 29th, 1996, Nick at Night's TV Land launched. Uh, TV Land's original programming consisted of shows primarily made between the 1950s and early 80s, as well as airing classic commercials. The popularity of the channel led to its own award show called the TV Land Awards that commemorated shows now off the air. The channel serves as, as a time capsule to both classic and not-so-classic television. So if you were a kid... And you were like, man, Nick and Knight is the best. I want it 24 hours a day. You probably watch TV Land. Love TV Land. Yeah. I still like TV Land. Good shit. All right, so over to Judge Bo B. Craft for the ruling. This is tough. You got uh, two really great wrestling-centric stories here, which is, uh, of course, my soft spot. Uh, I remember TV Land launching. I remember being a big fan of Nick at Night and for some reason really enjoying I Love Lucy. Uh, thankfully, I grew out of that phase pretty quickly. Uh, then also in, in 1984, this is like, this is unforgettable when Michael Jackson lights his hair on fire and uh, he gets second degree Verns for a goddamn Pepsi video. Come on. What, what Did they pay him enough to endure that? Like, is Pepsi paying enough for a man to lose skin and hair for their goddamn commercial? I don't know. How much uh, are they paying? I'll do I it. I don't know. I think I'll think about it, too. The, the the whole thing with John Stossel on, on 2020, kind of like pulling back the curtain, that reminds me of the uh, the Bob Costas HBO interview with Vince McMahon, which is a great watch if you haven't oh, seen that. Oh, yeah. Where he gets uh, pissed off. Yep. Yeah. Super great. Super great. In uh, this one, he, they do talk to Vince, but Vince is way younger at the time, and it's before he like coined you know uh, wrestling entertainment and Right. You just you didn't get the vibe. He wasn't very like uh con- confrontational. This guy was. So, I kind of believe the fact that he, you know, Vince told this guy to, you know, do your thing out there, but it's kind of fucked up if he fired him after it. Right. He just didn't want to be the fall man. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, man, there's so much good stuff going on. You got Hogan turning heel and creating the NWO, which is arguably one of the one of the greatest factions in all of wrestling history. Well, here's but, a, here's uh, a caveat to this story. Uh, he was, Dr. David Schultz was actually supposed to be in a tag team match in the initial WrestleMania, but because he got fired, obviously that went by the wayside. And he also got into a fight backstage with Mr. T too. I guess that had something to do with the firing. It was like a combination of the two things. No, you don't get in a confrontation with Mr. T outside the ring. I pity the fool. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, well man. Done. Well done. As, uh, as much as 96 really gets my heartstrings, I'm going to have to easily go with 84 here again because you've got Michael Jackson, the king of pop, lighting himself on fire for goddamn Pepsi of all things. And uh, John Stossel really kind of being one of the first to uh, break kayfabe, so to speak, and pull back the curtain on professional wrestling being scripted and, you know, learning about how the, the moves are done and the bleeding thing. That's uh, that's huge. And that obviously plays a huge factor into how we know wrestling today, which, you know, dirt sheets are legitimately every website, you know, will tell you spoilers and, and kind of backstage rumor mill stuff and right. things like that. So 84 takes it again here. Yeah. And it. Like you said, this is before social media and the internet. So all you had was this piece on 2020. And that's a lot of people at that point thought wrestling was real. You get Barbara Walters talking about wrestling. You got my attention. <laughs> watch the ep- If you haven't watched it, watch the episode on YouTube. It's, it's really interesting. All right. Nick Man Crush keeps control of the board. And we are in to the two-point rounds. Where are you going, man? Let's go to television hot products so we can wrap up with regular television. I think that's... Uh, probably the best way to do it here uh my first thing i got here one of the most amazing products to ever hit the as seen on tv scene premiered in 1984 not only is this product epic but the jingle for this product is epic if you know it do it along with me ready clap on clap off clap on clap Clap off off. the The clapper. clapper Now it's going to be stuck in your head forever because when I watched the video before, I was like, fuck, stop it. (laughs) And he bought five of them. (laughs) The clapper is it's like upper echelon as seen on TV, all star product. If there was like a Hall of Fame of as seen on TV products, you would have like a bronze bust. You'd have uh, fuck the club. GLH would probably be on there. A great looking hair. Uh, Slap chop. Foreman grill. Bowflex. And then, of course, you'd have the clapper and the clapper. Actually, the clapper sold over seven million units. And there it is. Mark holding a clapper up right there. I have an original clapper. And they make a pill for that, though. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a topical cream. (laughs) You get that, too. Do you remember the commercial? Like this one in 84 wasn't this commercial, but this one I remember because it was from like probably the early 90s. It was some like fat old grandmother laying in bed. And she claps the lights, but you know that the fat on her arm is like going to slap her side and turn the lights back on again. Like, like you just know that, that shit's fucking going on. Uh, anyhow, all right. So that's my first one. All right. And the second one, this one, this is really easy. Uh, I won't throw out too many figures on this one. It's just such an amazing television hot product. It doesn't really need much extended information. So you got September 17th. 1984, the first episode of Transformers premieres on syndication. And before you say it's not a hot product, let me just say this real quick. So Transformers came out an entire year before GoBots were released, which we all know my parents bought me. And not only were GoBots out for a year before uh, Transformers, the TV show Challenge of the GoBots actually came out a week before Transformers as well. But both times, Tonka just, you know, they beat Hasbro to the punch, but in most cases... First to market wins, not in this case. I love me some Hanna Barbera cartoons, but Marvel and uh, was it Sunbow that did uh, Transformers? They just they kicked Hanna Barbera's ass, and particularly between these two franchises. So basically, we got a badass cartoon, which you know of transforming robots, which is basically a five day a week as seen on TV commercial, and they did so good that it put GoBots to an early grave, and it only lasts like two years. On TV, and of course, everybody knows like Transformers just went crazy. They're still prominent, still making movies. Thanks to Shia LaBeouf. So we got Transformers, and we have the Clapper. Not bad. Not too shabby. So the Transformers toys came out in '84. Yes, they both came out the same year. Oh, Gobots right. came out in '83. All right, over to Mike Ranger. All right, let's do some hot products from TV of '96. Because in July of 1996, a resident of Sesame Street found a new home on store shelves and became one of the biggest must-haves of the of 1996 and 97. The Tickle Me Elmo doll by Tyco was a sensation of Cabbage Patch proportions, retailing for under $30 and reportedly being sold on the secondary market for over $1,000. 
The toy sold well before suddenly running out of stock the day after Thanksgiving. Most of the demand was believed to be caused by the uh, toy being featured on the Rosie O'Donnell show. By the end of December, one million dolls had been sold and hundreds beaten and trampled in the Elmo mania. Tickle Me Elmo. Remember that? Yeah. that Fuck fucking yeah, crazy. You couldn't Elmo. escape that shit. It's fucking Horrible. wild. But my next product is one that everybody loves. It was, uh, our story starts in 1994 when the TV network Fox signed a contract with an NHL to broadcast in America. David Hill, who was the head of Fox Sports, felt that if viewers could easily follow the puck, <laughs> oh, the God. game might be less confusing to new viewers and open the game up to a wider audience. And just like that, the Fox Tracks puck, or glowing puck, was born. The system used a modified hockey puck filled with some shit I won't bore you with uh, that would put it would send out infrared pulses that could be detected by cameras. The new feature was received, uh, received mixed reviews, and although Fox felt the experiment had been successful, it was last used in the first game of the 1998 Stanley Cup Finals. So glowing terrible. puck. It Remember was that? so hard to watch. Dude, people hated oh, it. it was bad. People hated it. It had trails thing. that went with the puck. Yes, it was bad. Yeah. Really annoying. Ruined hockey. Yeah. I had an as seen on TV product, but I just didn't think that the miracle mop was that fucking exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you know? It's no clapper, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so yeah, we got a Tickle Me Elmo and uh, a glowing hockey puck. Big year, big year. All right, Judge B. Craft, <laughs> what is your verdict for this round for Hunt Prize? I specifically, specifically remember just the mania that ensued when Tickle Me Elmo hit store shelves. I, I didn't understand the hype at the time. Uh, not that I had anything against it, but it was hard to argue that Tickle Me Elmo was literally everywhere, and that was like everything anyone was talking about. I don't remember the Fox Tracks puck, but I can only imagine what a piece of absolute shit that was, <laughs> and how fucking much more confusing it made the game to watch. Um, but then you go back to 1984, you've got Transformers. Hard to argue the staying power of Transformers, like uh, like Nick said. There's you know in movies, television shows, all kinds of different toy lines. Uh, and then you have the clapper, arguably the laziest fucking invention of the 20th century. <laughs> and yet still, or, or I guess I shouldn't be surprised, 7 million units sold. Like, how did people have obnoxious loud sex with these things? Like, if you're doing this... Like it's the like whole fucking time in the disco. Can you... Uh, yeah, no kidding. It's because they don't work worth a shit. I have tried to hook mine up so many times to all kinds of different <laughs> lights and stuff. It does not work. What about Wild. the super clapper? Does that work better? That was the uh, the reiteration that came out like years later. The super clapper, like the for super, super lazy people. <laughs> Mark, is yours a is yours a two prong or a three prong? Mine is a two prong. It's the original clapper. Okay, so you have the original. Oh. So the super clapper was a three prong. Well. I bet that brought a lot of pleasure to all kinds of families and individuals across the world. Well, when you when you add that third hole, it opens up a whole world of possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, it's really no contest again here for me. I'm going to go with 84 on this one simply because Transformers to this day are still around. Uh, the Clapper, I'm, I guarantee the last of that generation still has one in their house that they still use. Or, uh, you know, maybe they still use the touch lamp as well. They probably got the fiber optic wire lamp in there as well that shows My all kinds of different had, colors. Like, every lamp in the house was a touch lamp. Oh, just the worst. We had one of those up until about uh, two months ago, and somebody paid like $35 for it on the Facebook marketplace because they're an absolute Ooh, goddamn idiot. Lamp? Yeah. Oh, wow. I'll give you double what you're asking. Okay. There, there it is. Yeah. Uh, 84 takes it here again. All right. All right. We know what round we're finishing with, so. What do we have for television of 1984? All right. So, like I said before, NBC had a really good year in 1984. Uh, September 20th, 1984, they premiered a show about an upper-class African-American family named the Huxtables. I'm not going to beat around the bush for this one. It's a Cosby show. And, yes, I realize that it's marred by what transpired with Bill Cosby, but it's hard to not have this show on the list. I was going to go with Murder, She Wrote only because oh. of the thing with Cosby, but you really can't discount the show. The, it lasted for eight seasons. It had five consecutive years as the number one rated show on television. It spawned off a different world, which was 
top five in ratings for four of its six seasons. I mean, I know like, you know, Cosby just tarnished the legacy of the show, but it's probably one of the biggest sitcoms to ever be on television. And uh, interestingly, like I, I know that it got pulled off of everything, but there was one channel that was still playing it up until a Is couple UPN? months ago. And I don't have it down anymore. No, it was like some channel I never heard of. It was like a uh, like a BET knockoff that was still running it, but now nobody is. So unless you uh, pay for it on Prime or you own it, you're not going to see it. Sucks. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, he ruined it because now we'll never see the greatest character in television history, Cousin Pam. Oh, <laughs> Cousin Pam. <laughs> It's Mike Ranger's favorite. You know what's funny? You, you go back and you watch the Cosby show. It, all the evidence is right there. Yeah. Everybody loves uh, Mr. Huxtable's famous sauce. Oh, that's, oh, that's yeah. curry. Yeah, curry. <laughs> curry and pudding. <laughs> sad. It is sad. Because it's... When you think about the 80s and you think about like your like five shows that you can name, if you just go to somebody on the, scre- on the street, they're going to say the Cosby show is one of those shows. Oh, absolutely. It just sucks that, you know, that it's more than that, but it is what it is. But so I'm going, it is what it is that I'm going with the pick, not it is what it is that he did right. what he did. <laughs> Let's get that out there. Uh, all right. So September 16th, 1984, I already talked about this one a little bit. Uh, we had the meteoric rise of MTV in the early 80s, and every network was trying to get on board to hit that younger demographic. So NBC executive uh, came up with a brainstorm and, uh, as legend has it, the NBC president, it was Brandon Tartikoff. He scribbled down MTV cops on a napkin, and away we went from there. Uh, you know, from there, they brought in the producer from Hill Street Blues, Anthony Jerkovich, uh, who was actually only around for six episodes. And they decided at first it was going to be a TV miniseries called Gold Coast. But thank God that didn't happen. They brought on uh, Michael Mann, and he told them that was a fucking awful idea. Uh, they got rid of the name Gold Coast because that sounds like some kind of water sports fetish porn. And thankfully, they decided to turn it into a TV series and would appropriately name the show Miami Vice. And then just kind of utilize man's like unique, like neo-noir style where everything's in pastels. And it's such a great show. If you go back and watch it, like it might not be the greatest content in episodes, but just the imagery and the sound and everything, it's so 80s. It just sums the 80s up. Uh, it ended up running for five seasons. And like I said before about the ratings, I kind of touched on it. It never cracked the top 10. It's total snafu by NBC, considering they aired the show for the MTV crowd and they put it on Friday and Sunday nights. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, that said, the show transformed cop shows on TV also. You know, it added loads of violence, which you didn't see before. You had celebrity guest stars and they inspired fashion for a good like two or three years. Like every guy thought he was Sonny Crockett or wanted to be at least. And too bad John Cross wasn't on this episode, but uh, Dick Wolf was actually a writer and producer for Miami Vice. And after it ended, he started Law and Order. No Coincidence shit. there? I didn't know he worked on yep. Miami Vice. Yep. He had a couple episodes there under his belt. But yeah, there it is. If you uh, you don't want to see any earth tones and all pastel, Miami Vice is a show for you. <laughs> so I got Miami Vice. No brown. And the Cosby Show. And Green, forget about that shit. All right, close this out, Mike Ranger. What are your picks for television? All right, CBS debuted a show on September 13th, 1996 that ran for nine seasons and 210 episodes. Everybody Loves Raymond, starring Ray Romano, entered our homes as the Italian-American everyman Ray Barone, who lives a simple life with his wife and kids on Long Island across the street from his parents and older brother. The show was nominated for a total of 69 Emmys, taking home 15 of them, and from 98 to 2005, it was consistently among the top 15 shows in the ratings, proving one thing. Everybody Loves Raymond. <laughs> Raymond. <laughs> Everybody loved that entire show except for Raymond. That was the irony. <laughs> oh, and for my second pick, uh, debuting on July 22nd, 1996, and still running today on Comedy Central, is The Daily Show. Originally a replacement for Politically Incorrect, which moved to ABC, 
The Daily Show debuted with Craig Kilborn, where he parodied conventional newscasts as well as on-location reports, but it was Jon Stewart who took over in 99 that made the show what it is today. The show has gone on to be one of the biggest shows of all time, with over 20 Primetime Emmy Awards, and in 2015, the show received its third Peabody Award for the show's lasting impact on political satire. So The Daily Show... I never watched The Daily Show. I know it's a big deal, but I just... <laughs> folks love it. White folks particularly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's our final round. We're going to give it over to Judge Bo Beecraft. What is your final verdict on this television battle? Mm. So 84, you got The Cosby Show making its debut, Miami Vice. Uh, 96, you got Everybody Loves Raymond and The Daily Show. This is, uh, this is another really tough one. Big fan of Craig Kilborn. Love Craig Kilborn. I wish he would have never left uh, the Late Late Show on CBS. Thought he was brilliant. That being said, I don't watch a whole lot of The Daily Show to this day. Never really watched Everybody Loves Raymond, but I do have it on a few porno and monster truck tapes that I uh, dubbed over. Uh, back to the 80s. My, Miami Vice. Uh, again, everybody seems to love that show. I've honestly never seen an episode of it. But again, you said that, you know, the Cosby show kind of marred because of Bill Cosby being just a you know, pudding eating, curry eating, creep ass. Um, I'm disappointed you didn't go with Murder, She Wrote, just because Angela Lansbury was, was the Michelle Pfeiffer of, of 84. You know, you know what's something I could, interesting? I couldn't. Um, I think Murder, Murder, She Wrote ends in 96. Oh yeah, it was on for yeah. a very long time. It was yeah, uh, that thing was on forever, man. It's actually still on in Angela Lanbury's uh, caregivers area. <laughs> she she <laughs> still thinks they're filming. Gets up every day and solves a mystery with her typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before this gets too out of hand, uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with 84 here again. Uh, Holy sh! Damn Nikes. near, damn near clean sweep again. Almost. That means that Nick Mancrush is the first dueling decades singles champion crowned here on our show we're not sure who's going to step up to be the next competitor maybe we'll have a few surprises in the works for him next time but if you've missed an episode of our show you can always go back to duelingdecades.com and check out all of the episodes there you can subscribe on Castbox as well visit us at facebook.com forward slash dueling decades where you can peek behind the curtain and join our private group and continue the conversation there. So until next time, fellow duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Podcast New York. Be heard.